What happens when you stop seeing people? What happens when you stop seeing people behind bars as criminals and start seeing them as human beings? Welcome to Sentences: Storytellers Beyond Bars, the podcast where we explore the impact of the criminal justice system in our communities. Hello, I'm Jose. Hey, I'm Lizette. Hi, I'm Alfred, and welcome to episode two of Sentences. And uh, during this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off with Saliha and Doug. So you get the second half of that first uh, interview. Um, but before we get to that, we realized that there were a few things that we forgot to do during our first episode. Kind of like uh, introducing ourselves a little bit more. That way you guys get to know a little bit more about who who we are. And uh, yeah, so we'll start with the check-in, I guess. This time, so Lizette, do you want to go first? Or sure. Um, How are you uh, doing today? Okay, I'm a little bit stressed. So we're all grad students, English grad students, and I have like a paper due tomorrow. But I finally, finally today decided <laughs> or uh, came upon the argument that I'm going to use for my paper. So now I just have to get to writing. Is that going to help you? Maybe if you like talk about it, or do you not want to? <laughs> Um, I can talk about it. I'm writing, so it's like a 18th century, 19th century American uh, periodicals class that I'm taking, along with Jose. Yes. And we get to pick this like literary magazine and just periodical and write about that. And I decided to focus on a children's magazine. So I'm writing about how adults sort of inculcate all these crazy ideas um, into children, but they basically use morality to justify whatever atrocious actions they want to partake in. <laughs> so that's, that's where I'm at. Is this class, because I took something similar when I was uh, taking grad seminars still, is it kind of like exceeding your expectations? Is that we thought it was going to be, like the periodical? This class is not what I <laughs> want in my life right now. Yeah, <laughs> why? It's, it's a, a bunch of reading, uh, an excess of reading, and we actually read an article about the problems of this type of research. That since there's so much, there's so many periodicals, uh, you can make up an argument on anything. Yeah. So what what it actually are we doing? It seems like we're we're cataloging knowledge. We're just mining uh, the past, and it seems kind of pointless to me. But here I am doing it. But, sorry, what were you going to say? Just, are you telling me my argument is invalid? Like... <laughs> uh, my argument is invalid, too. <laughs> Your paper, to- yeah. <laughs> I remember one topic I brought up, because I, um, I took the same professor, and um, we were reading serialized literature. So we read yes. Uncle Tom's Cabin, but in its serial form. Yeah. And so we had to read that electronically. We had to find... We're going to do that, too. And the fun thing, the fun thing, the thing that was weird to me was that no one had published that version of the book yet so i we had to finally like we had to dig for ourselves to find like each of those individual chapters in serial form and then print them out or collect them and read them like that um and i talked to the professor and she said that that would be a good future project to figure out like what what the huge gaps are in between like why why it was changed like why did the changes that that happened happen um and because it's weird, right? Like it makes some of the changes make no sense, like name changes, and um, like continuity problems you mean, within the story. Some scenes were changed, were a little different. Like things that seemed arbitrary to change. Like why would you change something as small as that, in book form? 
right? Oh, okay. And I feel like the editors, editing, you know, the market was different for each of those. But I thought it was really interesting and for a future project maybe to talk about some of the changes that happened with that. But Yeah, well, that, that's the... That you just used the term that I was thinking, marketing. We're, we're dealing with commodified, like the beginning of like hyper commodification of literature where they're just yeah, producing yeah. it just to produce it and they're writing these short stories in serialized form because they want to market themselves in order to make money. It's not because they're telling a great story. Yeah. That's that seems like it's secondary, it seems like to me. Except for the Transcendentalist, which is a periodical that I'm that I'm researching. They're just crazy. <laughs> Um, Except for what I'm working on. What no, I'm working on is amazing. They're crazy because they believe that they're not doing that while using the same vehicle that everybody else is using, which is a periodical, which is in, intrinsically, it seems, capitalist. Right. And they think that they're doing something to combat that. That's interesting. Because um, I've always been interested in like reading stuff in serialized form versus like full public published a whole, as a whole, and it's interesting to think of how, with the rise of, like, mass print media, like, books and selling, like, the market, right, I wonder how publishing practices and writing practices shifted, mm. right, because people were writing a chapter a week or a chapter a month, right, in, in serial form, so you mm. had audience input, and maybe that influenced the direction of the novel, versus when you write yeah. just a novel, you're writing in isolation, in a sense, and you don't take feedback. And that is interesting to see how much of the the novel that we read today was influenced by outside uh, yeah outside readership, right? But I'm not doing anything as exciting as that. <laughs> what are you up to? I am trying to get as much of my thesis done as possible. So, like my friend Sonia says all the time, I'm typing and crying, <laughs> and I'm really excited about my my uh, my thesis, my project, but. For some reason, at this point, I'm not. <laughs> I just really want to, you know, turn it out. So I'm looking at prison narratives and slave narratives, and I'm connecting them through the way that they use writing to combat social death, this mm -hmm. position of social non-personhood. Um, and then, excuse, if you can hear people coughing, it's because we're in the, the library right now trying to record this, and we have people around us studying, coughing, typing, and crying also. <laughs> just um what is it called extracting i don't know what i'm trying to say our, our academic resources yeah um so that's where we're at we're three stressed out grad students trying to put this podcast together mm -hmm. <laughs> um but we're also really excited with the response that we got after our first episode mm -hmm. i was really happy with it um i don't know what do you guys what do you guys feel yeah anything surprise you or people are loving it <laughs> um my mom listened to it like a hundred times. I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> no she didn't. Um, but yeah, um, my my family in Juarez did listen to it, so that's kind of interesting. No yeah. way. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> cool. So. I had a couple, we had two cousins in Mexico that listened to it. Feels that's nice, awesome. right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. So shout out to families and like support systems. Seriously. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's a big... That's our largest network, right? Like, hey, listen to it, and then they go put it on their Facebook, mm -hmm. and then they'll kind of like their networks will maybe dismiss it or maybe yeah. Um, I'm also excited about some of the momentum because a lot more people have been reaching out as far as 
wanting to be on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And we've got a lot of stories piled up, ready to go. I know we have, um, for next episode, we're going to have, or future episode, we're going to have two of the two professors on campus. One, Dr. Roy, which is you heard about last episode, who's the director, founder of Words Uncaged. And then Dr. Um, Melina Abdullah, who is a professor in the Pan-African Studies Department. And she's a huge... Um, advocate for community rights and uh, Black Lives. She's a huge yeah. member. She's a, uh, the chapter director LA. of the LA chapter of the Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Matter. Yeah, so she's a huge. Um, it'd be great to have her and Dr. Roy on at the same time. Get them talking about mass incarceration and uh, ways to help the community because that's kind of what this podcast is geared for. That that was my first um, idea for it was, or my initial idea for it was to be a source or resource for people. Yeah. Um, who have family members or are f- formerly incarcerated themselves. So, yeah. Um, and then, I don't know, what else do you guys want to say before we jump in? Um, I'm glad that that paper is due tomorrow, so I can concentrate <laughs> on other things. Um, and just in case the, uh, the professor does listen to this, um, I don't hate her class that much. <laughs> <laughs> no backtracking. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what you said. The class is actually. Sorry. I appreciate the discussions in the class. Um, yeah. But it is uh, problematic. And maybe that's what the point of the class is. See how problematic it is. I think it's good. It's very self aware of the class itself to have those kinds of discussions and mm-hmm. acknowledge the fact that there's so much content out there that almost seems overwhelming and pointless to. Yeah. Try and make sense of it. And maybe that's not the point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, before we jump into the interview part, just remember that we had some technical issues with that initial recording. So some of the audio, volume, levels. Mm-hmm. audio levels might be off. You might hear a lot of background noise. It might be distracting. So please bear with us. Our future interviews won't have that. Um, we've learned. Yes. <laughs> We're learning. We are learning. <laughs> We're still learning. We... We'll have better insulation for the next, <laughs> <laughs> for the next recordings. So. Yeah, and stick around for after the interview for some uh, some news and updates about future episodes and ways you can reach out to us. And if you have any questions or comments, there's different ways for you to get those to us, and we'll hopefully address them in future episodes. So yes, thanks for sticking around for another episode, and enjoy the interview. I just thought of a story that provides sort of an interesting overlap too, because Cal State LA is, is I think, an, an interesting campus. I think there are uh, statistically more students who come from my sort of background, working class, underclass, racialized communities, um, and sometimes that uh, um, interaction with the prison industrial complex can spill over into the lives of students and professors uh, in some very interesting ways, and I'm thinking about someone I knew who was taking a class and um, had been sentenced to serve weekends in, uh, in jail um, <coughs> while a student here at Cal State LA. And so what did, you know, professors have their deadlines for projects. What do you say to a student who tells you, well, I was in jail over the weekend and I will be every weekend throughout the rest of the semester. Wow. 
And yeah. so, you know, um, I'm not, you know, this isn't necessarily a common thing here at Cal State LA. <laughs> but I've, I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. That's the truth. It is. It really is. I mean, there's, first of all, the shame of a student mm -hmm. having to confess something like this to their professor. Um, but And there's also the professor having to take this into account and think about their own, perhaps, social commitments or ideals about social justice and how do you work with a student with this, with this unusual and complicated problem. But I think it just brings, um, I bring it up because um, when we're talking, first of all, because I want to, to do something to dispel our illusions about the distance between people who are incarcerated and ourselves. It's not always such a great distance. Um, you, there may not be anyone in your family, but there might be somebody sitting next to you in class who either has been formerly incarcerated or is dealing with the criminal justice system at that moment, um, which impacts our lives in ways that we might not necessarily see. But it's, you know, the, the people who are locked up um, are not, again, these terrible people who, um, who are getting what they deserve, but they are human beings who have, for lots of different reasons, been caught up in the criminal justice system. And sometimes they have done terrible things, and sometimes they haven't. Um, but regardless, there is a certain basic level of treatment that all creatures, even animals, deserve. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I, I mentioned that story uh, again because I want to reinforce the idea that these, these, the distance between these institutions, and that's something I hope we get to talk about at some point in the program, the parallels between uh, higher education and incarceration and, and the, the things that these institutions have in common in terms of reinforcing certain ideologies and shaping certain types of thought. Um, but the distance between these institutions are not so very great. And speaking to that, the similarities and the bridging the gap, because mm -hmm. we don't want to, I don't want to risk, run the risk of erasing, well, I'll, I'll skip that part. Uh, what I want to say is, one thing that also really made it real for me, this, this similarity between like, the institutions, mm -hmm. right, is the university and the prison, is when I first walked onto the yard, uh, with Dr. Roy, I saw it was like after lunchtime. So the, the, some of the guys were out there with their ice creams from lunch from the cafeteria, and there's the same ice creams I used to get at elementary school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The same brand, <laughs> the same, the same yeah. brand, the same flavor. Yes. And I was like, yes. shit, like yeah. that. That's just cra yes. that, it's crazy how that stuck with me because I'm yeah. like, damn it, you know that that's real. Yeah. Like that that just made it that much more real to me, as if I didn't need it to be. Yeah, um. you know, I used to call. Um, so I, I went to junior high out in the uh, in the valley in Merced, and there was a huge issues with lots of young men at that time who were um, being channeled into the juvenile justice system uh, for lots of reasons, really related to location and racism and all that sort of thing. But um, but I used to call our school a prison preparatory program, right? Some, <laughs> some kids go to college prep, we went to prison prep. And so a lot of the ways the school is run, and I even see this in this fairly upper middle class high school that my own children are in now, like a lot of the school system is very similar to the way prisons are run. I mean, what, I mean, when you were talking about that, I'm thinking, what do you call the area where kids go to recess? We called it the yard, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, 
um, especially in uh, in communities from which the majority of the prison population is drawn, our education system in many ways mirrors a prison system. There's a bunch of little mechanisms put in place in schools and in prisons to keep people in line yes, yeah. and to keep them in order. Um, you line up, mm -hmm. you wait your turn, you wear uniforms. Uh, count offs. Yeah, count offs, exactly. Uh, no first names, you might be a number. You know, what's, like your, what's your student ID? What's your student ID? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My, my background is psychology, so a lot of that stuff um, comes from like social psychology, like little mechanisms of social control and social order. Mm -hmm. Keep but people in their place or whatever. I remember I took a few classes in the credential program here at Cal State LA, and I remember one of the things that we learned is that our education like, program, the way it's set up, is like in preparation for war. So like your classroom is set up so that there's somebody in front of you who is instructing you who is in a position of power and you fall in line behind them. So your desks are in a row. You wear uniforms, you do that, and it's just that sort of to assert that position of power for one person. And it was really weird to read that. I was like, wait, 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 you're like training kids to go to war? Like you don't even know that that's what's happening. <coughs> it's really bizarre to read that. We're trained in the follow orders and yeah. That's like yeah. the what the bank what Paulo Ferrer calls the banking method of education, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, you're With, Paulo Freire, you guys tried to use in the, the writing mm -hmm. center, right? That mm -hmm. philosophy. What drew you to that specifically? Do you remember? That reading? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, For me, Freire is sort of like, I don't think you should begin anything in education without starting with with uh, with Freire. Uh, and for me, Bell Hooks as well, who um, is heavily influenced uh, by Paulo Freire. Um, and I always feel like I'm mispronouncing his name, but uh, yeah, <laughs> same <here>. <laughs> or like <laughs> uh, after all these years, you think I would have Googled it, but, <laughs> but no, it's it Portuguese. It's so it it's hard, Portuguese, hard yeah. to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. <laughs> We're gonna get some angry Portuguese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why is why is Portuguese so much First of all. from systems of oppression. So whenever I'm talking about an institution or even a personal practice, I'm always thinking about what is, how can I act in ways and think in ways that direct toward um, liberation from, from, uh, from oppression. And for me, Freire was, is, was really um, foundational to me thinking critically about how institutions and in, in particular education function. So um, I was introduced through a college class uh, to his work and it's it stood with me ever since. So. Oh, my bad. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't recall exactly why uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, why we select that like, but I wasn't familiar with it at all, and I started reading it. Um, I forget which chapter we started with or, or which ones we went through, but um, reading it was like, it, it's kind of like challenging the methods of education that we were brought up with all the way from like preschool up until college, where there's like this authority figure in front of the classroom. They're the, uh, they're your, your guide, they're your, kind of like your dictator or something. I mean, that's that's kind of hyperbolic or whatever, but they're the person that you look to, or maybe it's not so hyperbolic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Speak, Doug. Speak it. 
um, they're, they're the person who's going to teach you what you need to know and uh, how to think and how to see things, you know, and that that text, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, kind of challenges that where the the authority isn't a single person. It's more of a relationship between student and teacher where those roles kind of um, they reverse throughout the whole relationship. Um, just like the the teacher isn't absolute authority. The authority is kind of logic and truth, mm -hmm. um, perspective, experience. Um, I, I thought that was, uh, it, it was, it, it really shifted my, uh, my whole outlook on education, you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, education tends to like quiet down voices who aren't part of the class of, of the educated or whatever. So, um, I thought it was, it was pretty cool, especially, I mean, you can't really talk down to people, um, that way it's going to turn them off to education. You know, I mean, I got a lot yeah. of friends who, who don't take education seriously, see no value in it. Um, at least that's what they say, but I think that's more like a, ra a rationalization because um, if you don't come from that world, if if your family's not part of that world, like a lot, like a, I'm a I'm second generation here, you know, I, I was born here in, in, uh, in the United States but my parents don't come from here. And I have a lot of friends who weren't born here or uh, or whose parents weren't born here. And the, the world of... Uh, of English speaking education in the United States uh, tends to isolate a lot of people out mm -hmm. because of that approach of um, you listen to me uh, I'm gonna show you what you need to know uh, mm -hmm. shut up sit down and that's pretty much it I mean yeah what more can I add to that yeah, I think I think for me kind of going off of what you two were saying it was just a fun it was a good jumping off point for us for that for the kind of tone and the kind of culture we wanted for the writing center mm -hmm. it was a really I remember reading it back in in undergrad and being one of those it was one of those texts that the claim it was making is so simple but it was still very like mind-blowing to me at the time mm -hmm. I was like oh shit you're right like we have been in this kind of system and why don't we do it this way and um, of course like like Saliha was saying there's a lot of uh, critical analysis or a lot of responses to free air since then um, and I think there's a lot of work that can be done with that initial text but I think it was important for everybody in that writing center that we were trying to establish to read it and I also think it's important because the uh, men in Lancaster had read it mm -hmm. so they also were familiar with the text mm -hmm. and I figured at least let us be on the same page in that sense mm -hmm. um, but how did you two feel Jose and Lizette how did you two feel reading it was that your first time reading it for that for that group or yeah <clears throat> I was totally into it I was like every single like sentence I was like yeah yeah this is great because I had a horrible experience in high school um, I don't know if I was discriminated against or not but the school didn't know the, the school the district didn't know what to do with me mm. um, I came from from Los Angeles the Echo Park area around the second grade and I would, and then my parents moved to to Glendale to get away from from gang violence and uh, this was during the, like the late 80s. And once I got into to the Glendale district, they kept putting me in ESL classes. Even though I spoke English fine, I could write it fine, every year I'd, we'd have to go and tell them, no, I don't belong in these classes. Until when I got to, to junior high, they pretty much told me there's no room for you anywhere else we're gonna put you here this wow. is it 
and I wasn't able to get out of it till I was in the ninth grade but by then I didn't learn the things I was supposed to learn about the structure of an essay how to to analyze text I was just doing these like horrible like those workbooks Mm -hmm. and I was just I just got bored with school so it's pretty much that banking method Mm -hmm. that experienced it Mm -hmm. and it made me stop going to school. Mm-hmm. My junior year, I didn't go to my, my whole junior year mm-hmm. of high school. And it wasn't until I went to continuation school that I got um, a sample of something different mm-hmm. where they were like, well, what do you want to, what do you want to learn? And I was like, well, why are you asking me these questions? kind of broke you. Yeah. And in, in that year, I actually learned to do the things that I'm doing right now with mm-hmm. this recording. I learned wow. how to use these programs, uh, like um, you know, Photoshop, uh, Final Cut, uh, Illustrator, and I and uh, I learned so much more than I did, I think, from middle school to the tenth grade yeah. in that last year yeah. when I was in school. So reading, reading. Uh, or Frere, if that's how you say his name. Um, <laughs> that's how we're saying it. Yeah. Um, reading him, it really, it really, uh, it gave me a sense like, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't like going crazy. Uh-huh. Like there is another yeah. way of doing this. That's such a comforting Isn't thought. It? <laughs> it is. Yeah, no, it's so powerful. They yeah. have that affirmation, like it's yeah. not just me. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was my first time reading it, definitely. Um, uh, the same thing, I remember reading it and being just blown away because I want to teach for the longest time. I remember being a kid and pretending that I was going to teach. Um, that I was going to teach like in front of an Im- invisible classroom because I had wonderful invisible students. <laughs> um, and I just remember that I, I've always, I'm very much a collaborative person and I've always mm-hmm. thought of partnerships as something that would work, but I remember also going into a magnet program, leaving my school in Boyle Heights to go into this magnet program, and one of the first things that was said to me was, you're no longer allowed to speak Spanish. Like, we're gonna learn English now, and don't you wanna be like all your friends? And of course I wanna be like all of my friends, and I wanna have friends at a new school. So from there on, it was very much the banking method of education that I was sort of sitting in until I got to high school, where I came back to Boyle Heights, I was in the magnet program, but I had teachers, similarly to Jose, who were like, what do you guys wanna do? Like, tell me what you want to learn. Um, let's let's do this together. And our classrooms were set up so that we were facing each other as students rather than sitting in lines. Mm. And the teacher would walk around. He wouldn't stand in the front of the classroom. So he wasn't so much dictating as just speaking with us and to us. Um, and I remember reading that and having just taken a few courses in the credential program here and thinking how disappointing it was that all we were learning in the credential program was basically to fall in line. Mm. Like, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna help these students because you have the resources. Yeah, maybe, but these students have so much to offer yes, already. Yeah, Why do yeah. I have to be the one who has the knowledge to to give them? Like, I can learn from them too. And like Doug said, this relationship like fluctuates and it's in flux all the time. Like, it's a give and take. Mm-hmm. I can learn from you just like you can learn from me. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of Frank McCord, uh, <laughs> who teach, who taught, he's uh, an Irish immigrant. Um, he got his, uh, He's an Irish immigrant who became a teacher, and one of his like dreams was to become an NYU student and then to teach, and he, stu- he taught at Stuyvesant uh, with a lot of kids who are not from his background, like a varied population of students, and his thing was like, I'm here to help, and I'm here to learn. 
So tell me your stories and I'll tell you mine. And he was very open about that. So I really, really appreciated reading that in a text. And I just love that mm. idea, that concept. So thanks for opening <laughs> my world to that. Yeah. yeah. Good choice. And one of the challenges that comes with this idea of um, like challenging the banking method, right? And making it a little bit more of a discussion and a reciprocal relationship versus like this, I'm your, I'm your one source of knowledge. Filling up an empty vessel. Yeah, yeah. One of the challenges that comes with that, and I remember being very conscious of this as a tutor in the writing center here on campus, was that you also can't deny that you have some sort of value, like knowledge, yeah, knowledge yeah. that that would benefit the student, yes, you know? absolutely. Um, and I think of, I forgot who the authors are, but The Power of Grammar is a book that yeah. um, that kind of helped reinforce that idea of, yeah. yes, grammar is important, important for students to know, but they also need to know that it's not the end all, like be all end all of how to write a, a paper yeah. and being a writer. And so get, sharing with them why you know how to use it wisely and when to use it, and when to know why, why they're using it is mm -hmm. also as important as learning learning them as teaching them how to use it you know um yeah so i think that that's interesting it's always the line that role i'm always trying to negotiate is like how do i you know acknowledge what i know but be open to you know learning still mm -hmm. from someone who i was taught not to learn from yeah you know mm -hmm. yeah I think that's the, as I'm listening to our different experiences and my heart is hurting for the kind of stuff that we all have to go through in our education system. Um, but I'm also thinking that one of the reasons it's so difficult is we don't have models for, for, for a different type of education where we really do respect what the student brings to the classroom experience. Um, and many of us don't even see that until we enter uh, an upper division college class or even grad school where the professor's like, what do you think? And they seriously want to know, yeah. it sometimes, um, what you <laughs> think. And then here you are um, on the spot, challenged to think critically and, and challenged to take responsibility for the quality of education that you're getting and your, and your peers are getting because a lot of that depends on the quality of, of the exchange that happens in that classroom. Um, but why in the world should you wait until you're in college or in grad school before you have that experience? This is something that we should grow up with. And I've had some wildly different experiences in education. I went to um, uh, Catholic schools and I went to underfunded public schools and I went to a very elite and exclusive high school. And so I've had these really different experiences with how different classes of people are educated. And let me tell you that in that very exclusive elite um, high school, we had very small classrooms. We almost always sat in a circle, um, except for like lower level math or early, huh. you know, uh, freshman and, and um, uh, sophomore math, which was very much that banking model. But everything else, we sat in a circle. I had a few teachers with PhDs, and um, and we were expected to to contribute. Um, to the classroom uh, to do the reading and to take some responsibility for the quality of, of discussion in the class. Um, and so that was a huge advantage for me um, entering college with uh, experiences that a lot of my peers hadn't had yet. But of course the danger of a bunch of working class people who think critically is that we'll start to ask questions and challenge things, mm -hmm. which is, yeah, and that's not how our society is set up. Um, but. 
I certainly want to facilitate all of that challenging and question asking. Yeah. So, yeah. I think what we're doing today is like we're we're like kind of creating a list of like future episodes. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> like so right. All these are yeah. Like Jose's doing a really good job of you know archiving yeah, really. all this stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if this is going off on a tangent, but hearing the experiences each of you have had with education once makes me want to talk about my own um, a little bit more. If that's right with you yeah. guys. Yeah. That's yeah. fine, no, of course. Um, so hearing your experiences makes me feel really lucky mm-hmm. about my own. Um, so I'm an LAUSD kid, Los Angeles Unified School District, as is Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Um, and... LAUSD uh, has a has a pretty bad reputation. At least it's had mm-hmm. a bad reputation for decades, and they're really working on their image now. I don't know if they're actually working on their methods, but they're working <laughs> on their image. Um, <laughs> right. Sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, saying that, uh, I went to John Marshall High School in Los Feliz, class of uh, 07, and I don't. So by, by luck, I was placed in a kind of like a pilot experimental education program mm-hmm. where a group of teachers, uh, I don't think any of them were PhDs, they were probably mastered and credentialed, uh, were trying out a new method of educating a class of students. So we were class of 07, we started in 03, I believe. All of us came from LAUSD middle schools uh, in, Echo, in Echo Park, in Virgil Village, in... Uh, Hollywood and uh, John Marshall High School is in Los Feliz so we all uh, most of us were like working class or working poor most of us are Latinos there was Armenian students there was uh, a few white a few black but mostly Latino uh, second generation first generation English Spanish speaking and these teachers uh, had all these subjects math English history etc and all of them decided that every semester they would all teach a certain theme and use their discipline to touch on that theme. Mm. So, uh, and they wouldn't use the traditional methods of uh, just lectures and textbook readings and outlines and essays and stuff like that. So for example, when we were learning about World War II, we were reading some World War II literature um, from the United States in in, uh, English class. I can't recall any authors or pieces. But in history class, uh, the teacher made up a board game where he broke up each, uh, he, he broke up the whole class into like four or five or six or seven different groups or teams. And each of us were a country from World War II. And we were the Axis and the Allies. All of us had the resources that each country had. So, for example, Germany had free labor um, because of the, the slavery with the Jewish people. And the United States had two atomic bombs that they could use. Um, and we were. We were basically trying to dominate each other. Mm-hmm. And he made up all these rules, and it was really far out, man. It was a fun game. Um, <laughs> it was. Like, it was fun, and it made history, like, really interesting. Because yeah. um, we kind of we got to see what uh, having certain resources gives you a lot of power yes. over different yes, yes. O- over d- different organizations, mm-hmm. and these organizations were countries. Um, so, like, I, I forget which, like, I don't know. Some countries got stomped out really quickly, while others, mm-hmm. while others mismanaged the huge resources that they had, and uh, failed. Um, yeah, and I mean, it, it was just a. That's cool. Yeah, it was it was just a really trippy education That's that I had, 
yeah in another in another english class we um we used a socratic seminar where we all sat in a circle instead of uh lines of students facing the front of the classroom we all sat in a circle we read most of us or some of us read uh, henry david thoreau and we talked about wow. it, its re its relevance to to our lives and mm -hmm. society and stuff like that so um the the intention of the of that uh, experimental education program which they called humanitas after humanities or something like that so the, the whole intention of it was let's take let's randomly select a group of students from the area not take into account their income their education their culture their ethnicity any of that we'll just randomly select out of several thousand students we will select a few hundred mm -hmm. and we'll give them all the same college preparatory education mm -hmm. and let's see where they end up That's yeah and they implemented these these crazy methods that um, were really intriguing to me. Like they opened my mind up to to something completely new, um, and they let us. They encouraged us to speak up. Uh, unlike some of your experiences, you know, mm -hmm. they encouraged us to speak up about um, what we really thought and felt about what we were reading and, and playing and uh, learning about, which was really far out. So by accident, I was placed in a history class outside of this program one semester. I think it was probably my senior or my junior year in high school. Um, and I didn't know most of my classmates. I knew some of them through friends of friends and stuff like that, but they weren't part of this program and neither was this teacher. And this teacher just had, he announced on the first day and we would be reading a chapter each week. We would sit at our desks, make an outline of that chapter. The following week we would have a test and we would start all over. Um, and he was really hands off. He would just sit at the front of the desk, at the front of the class um, reading his newspaper and everybody was just fucking around in class, man. I mean, nobody was really reading or making outlines, you know? Um, so I, I lasted a couple of weeks in that before I finally went to go talk to like a counselor and they, and they brought me back to the history class. I was supposed, supposed quotation marks to be in, right? That I was like lucky enough to be in. Um, but ha having that experience and hearing about yours really makes me grateful that I had, that I was lucky enough to have that experience. And um, yeah, I mean, that touches on the, the methods and philosophy of education that we were kind of talking about and how that that type of stuff might have worked for a certain population because i think that's kind of like an antiquated um the uh the banking method like we say like there's a person in the front of the classroom mm -hmm. dropping knowledge on on all these students um th that seems like a really antiquated um method of educating people that doesn't fit the population's of of, uh, of of our people, man, and you know, our, our different types of people. It just doesn't work. I mean, the approaches that these teachers tried with us, um, I don't know if they reached every single student, but I know that that had a huge effect on several of us. I mean, still to this day, you know. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that people that people don't know it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm very, yeah. I'm very. I mean, I feel like I'm convinced that people know that it's broken. Yeah. But there's no like. What do we do? So, so one of my favorite quotes is by, uh, I think it's what is it, Lewis Sinclair? Mm -hmm. it says you can't pay so you can't make somebody understand something that they're paid not to understand. <laughs> yeah. So he was he was making a critique about some, it's something like that. He's making yeah. a critique about bureaucracy. Yes. That yes. people are paid to be in these positions and they're paid to know what they're paid to know and, and that's it yeah not only paid in money but paid in social status too yes and so people don't want to risk their positions their social positions but the, the social capital the the cash capital any sort of capital when it comes to challenging the system which i think 
Oh, and I know I'm gonna. This is gonna come back to bite me. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about this whole podcast. <laughs> right, me too. But, but I, you know, I don't have much of a filter anyway. I just charge ahead through life and deal with the consequences later. <laughs> head on, let's do it. But please continue, continue. But, um, what I was going to say is that um, those of us who are do, do not have those positions um, and who are in a lot of ways locked out of having those positions have um, in some ways we can take advantage of our positions on the margins um, to to challenge the system with even more force because frankly we have less to lose because we're not allowed to gain anything so mm -hmm. um, and so and I, and I say this might come back to bite me because I'm also very careful about trying to place the responsibility for change on the people who are most harmed by the system as is. We carry enough mm. burden. And so I think that anybody of conscious who really cares about uh, changing things for the better uh, needs to take on responsibility to, to make those changes. Um, even those who are benefiting from the status quo, uh, people know that things are not working, including those who are benefiting from things as they are now. And plenty of people are willing to talk about it, but when it comes to taking the risk of taking action, we see far fewer people willing to do anything other than to continue talking. Um, but we're, all of us, I think, are in a really unique and, of course, precarious position. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because we have a lot of um, education and knowledge, um, and, um, and so here we are trying to figure out how to use it in ways to make sure that other people on the margins get something better than, than we did. Or, in Doug's case, get something as awesome as we did. I got lucky, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it just, and listening to Doug's experience, I keep thinking it, it makes me upset because all of our kids deserve that type mm -hmm. of education. Um, that sounds so exciting. Yeah, and I was <laughs> thinking, like, it's so shitty that that's such a rare yeah. experience, yeah. you know? And, like, the more common experience would be something like Jose might experience. Right? Yeah. The credit really goes to those teachers that I had. Yeah. You know, I mean, they they fought hard I'm to sure get funding did. for that. They fought hard to get recognized mm -hmm. um, as an official program within the school. They had a lot of pushback from other teachers. They asked, I mean, I was really passionate about it, and I, I think um, I, I gave them a lot of credit and told them about um, like the effect it was having on me. So they had me speak up like during, uh, uh, I guess, the like, committee meetings among faculty at, at the school. And um, I got to see like a lot of the, the petty politics between between educators in a high school. And I remember I told one of them after, I was like, how can you guys expect anything better from us when you guys are no better than us? You know, like you guys are just as childish as we are. I mean, look at the way you guys are bickering over this tiny stuff. Um, but money was involved, so I guess that's that was like the root of all that, you know, limited funding and yeah. um, everybody wants money for their program and for their own income. Yeah. And of course, LAUSD is going to give money to the program that makes them look good. Exactly, yeah. That's what happened in my case too, the magnet program. I was fortunate to be in the magnet program at Roosevelt where I had teachers like you who put in the extra time and the extra work to be at school at 6 in the morning because I know that students get dropped off before their parents leave to work and they need somewhere to go, mm. or where they're gonna put in extra work to work on a curriculum with the English teacher and the history teacher so that these kids could learn literature and context. Um, so, like you said, a lot of the credit goes to the teachers too. I will say that my teachers were also white. Mm. Um, Yo, so were mine, dude. <laughs> yeah, so they came from a position of privilege as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but 
it was I learned a lot too and it's experiential learning it's the kind of stuff mm-hmm. you, if you felt it it changed you mm-hmm. you know what was cool like now that it, now that you mentioned that because I hadn't even thought of that that they were all white my teachers but they weren't imposing like a white world yeah. or a white perspective on me it was kind of like they were like hey check this out you know like what does this mean to you what does this mean mm-hmm. to where you come from and what mm-hmm. you've been through mm-hmm. um, it, it, it wasn't like they were trying to replace my identity or anything yeah. like that you know what I mean it was like they were trying to give me some other tools to use which was really cool it was like cool I'm like learning street smarts from my friends and from my own experience and learning book smarts from from these people who were cool enough to teach it in a in a way that didn't turn me off and speaking of street smarts and and book smarts because this is something that is on my mind quite a lot um, and I, because I think about the kind of knowledge that we have, those of us who are on, who are marginalized on various axes of identity, our communities have usually survived because we have some sort of critical consciousness that we pass on and circulate amongst one another. Um, and it's so interesting to me that when I got getting into the university and reading Foucault or Freire, other critical thinkers um, that are influential in, in my discipline in literature, um, and having professors being surprised that I brought a, a critical consciousness to the classroom. And I'm like, well, you know, I might not come from this upper middle class background and, and have the same type of education you have, but there's no way my people as African-Americans could have survived America if we didn't have some sort of critical consciousness, consciousness mm-hmm. about our position in this society. So what you're saying to me might be presented to me in a new language, but it's not news, it's not new. Um, and so I'm really, and this goes, this speaks to the, the vision I had for um, our writing center too, um, and in our communication with the incarcerated students. Um, their language, their way of communicating their understanding of their position in the world is really, really, really important. We are not trying to replace anyone's language, or um, but trying to, because, because language is um, critical to our ability to understand and, and communicate our understanding of the world. And so the differences in, in um, the way we communicate that understanding are all important to our epistemology, to our knowledge building and how we understand the world. So I am a strong advocate for the use of African-American English basically everywhere and everything um, because, this, because I think the language of my people is poetic and powerful and, and extremely valuable in helping the world understand our worldview. And that can be communicated in the in the uh, language of academe, but something is lost when it's translated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I encourage students in the writing center. We have an overwhelmingly Latinx population here at Cal State LA, and I encourage students to use their language. All of the students, regardless of their backgrounds, but I'm specifically talking about Spanish-speaking students as much as possible in their academic papers because your language is important and it's okay for a reader to have to engage with a text and figure things out um and so we're forced to do it all the time exactly right make your professors work (laughs) (laughs) hey everyone thanks again for listening that was the end of our introduction to words and cage the writing lab ourselves and the podcast we have some exciting guests lined up for our next episode so keep coming back Also, please be patient with us. We are grad students, and we're trying to be as consistent as we can with this podcast. Hopefully after the second episode, they'll be coming out every other week. Hey, and remember to follow us on Instagram, iTunes, and SoundCloud uh, using at Sentences Podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes and SoundCloud, and send any comments, questions, 
suggestions you may have to sentencespodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing back from you, and thanks again. Bye.